Hi, this is Dr. Lee Ma's podcast, where I talk about life outside the clinics. In this episode, I am having a conversation about wines with another physician. During the last episode, where I told my story of apples, I mentioned that the first apples introduced to the new world were mainly used for cider making, and ciders were the alcoholic beverage of choice for the early settlers in this country. Nowadays, when we get together with family and friends for a nice meal and great conversations. Grape wines are often the drink most of us prefer. Many of my physician friends enjoy wines and drink them moderately and responsibly, and our discussions of wines are uniquely interesting because the topic can flow effortlessly between how humans master the art of winemaking and how wines affect humans. Today, I have the privilege to have Dr. Abe Rivera to join me on this episode about wines. Dr. Rivera is a highly respected physician in the field of anesthesiology and interventional pain medicine in the Greater Tampa Bay area. Many of us within the specialty have learned numerous advanced procedures from him. He has also set an excellent example for younger physicians in striking the balance between being a competent doctor and living a healthy and satisfying life outside work. He knows a great deal about beverages and foods. Thus, I'm ready to pick his brain. So, Dr. Rivera, this may be a silly question, but how do you choose your wine at a restaurant? I have to admit that after learning about wines for years and having visited wineries in different countries, I'm still at a loss very often in choosing a wine, say at a restaurant, especially at places where the wine list is global and sophisticated. I feel I know a few names, but there is so much I do not know, and I want to explore. <laughs> of course, there is also this factor called price. Should I go with one of the priciest bottles, or pick wine in the medium price range, or just be most adventurous and try my luck with the modestly priced wines on the menu? So, how do you do it? So, in many social situations, for one reason or another, we end up being the hosts of a dinner program or the host of a meeting. And again, for one reason or the other, it is not rare that we get asked to pick a bottle of wine. The art. Is from picking a bottle of wine that everybody likes, that has a pleasing taste, that is universally agreeable. Yet we don't want to break the piggy bank. Anybody can buy the most expensive bottle in the restaurant, and it better taste good at that kind of money if you're spending, right? But in reality, 
The art resides in picking a very reasonable bottle of wine that still is something that everybody likes. Uh, and, and there is such a thing. It can be done. Uh, the, the price of wine is totally arbitrary. The, the price has very uh, little meaning uh, in regards to taste, contents, and uh, an appeal. There are phenomenal wine bottles out there that retail for $20, $25. And there is the same bottle. You can buy and pay $2,000. Quite frankly, having tasted both of them, that's not much different, especially for the unsophisticated palate of me and most of my peers. Uh, but be as it may, um, we open that wine list, that wine chart, and we start taking a look. There is no method that I know to learn how to do this. There is no systematic way of learning how to appreciate a wine bottle. You basically have to start drinking bottles of wine and remembering names. And at some point, you come up with a repertoire, a number of bottles and names that you recognize. And you can make some associations between whether or not the grape is a Cabernet, whether or not the grape is a Merlot, whether or not it's from one country, one region, one state versus the other. But at the end of the day, you have to drink it, taste it, like it, and create your own repertoire. And hope that you find that wine that you like so much for which you paid a reasonable price on that wine menu. Now, restaurateurs, they know that too. So they make an effort in doing exactly what I just described themselves. That's why they have their favorite lists. And believe me, these people drink much more wine than I do. They do this for a living. So they are supposed to have those lists out there to please and appeal the taste of the great majority of people at a reasonably priced. Unfortunately, some other forces act upon them, specifically marketing. In marketing creates a, an incredible uh, variance in the price point of wines that has absolutely nothing to do with the quality, the taste, and the appeal uh, of these wine bottles. So that, and that's how I pick a bottle of wine. I see. So pretty much one just has to learn by trying. Hmm. It's relieving to hear what you just said. Okay, let's say I take my pick. They open the bottle. Hopefully, I and my company are happy with the wine or at least think it's drinkable. I have never been so disappointed that I have to return the wine. But do people really return a bottle at restaurants if they are disappointed? How do you do that in the least awkward manner? Returning a wine bottle. You know, it's, it's an awkward situation. You don't want to be the snobby guy at the restaurant that tells the maitre d' this bottle is bad. On the other side, uh, you need to be honest. Uh, you need to be honest because, quite frankly, you're paying for a bottle. And number two, people are going to figure it out that there's something that is not right with this wine. Now, what makes you return a wine bottle? And how do you get suspicious of a wine bottle? Well, the first thing is you look at the bottle itself, okay? Clearly, if the glass is cracked, something is not right. Number two, check the temperature. If the bottle has been left out in the sun, or if the bottle was 
in the kitchen next to the fire, chances are that wine boiled. That wine is, is being cooked. Uh, look at the cork. If the cork has leaked and if there is dried wine around the opening of the cork, then clearly the cork was not watertight. It's a two-way street. If wine came out, oxygen went in, and that wine is probably oxidized, is going to taste skunky. And I wish I could have had a better term for that, but skunky is a term that we use. It's probably because the wine undergoes a, um, a aldehyde saturation. Some of the alcohol becomes acetaldehyde, and that gives you that skunky flavor. Uh, the third thing you want to look at is when you pour it, okay? By the way, that cork, when they take it out, if it come out in pieces and crumbled, that's not good. Chances are that wine, again, was oxidized. That cork had to be healthy, had to be moist, it had to come out in one piece. If the cork broke, that's not good. Chances are that wine was already spoiled. Corks out comes out clean, and that's why they hand you that cork before they pour it to you. It's not to smell it, by the way. People smell it. I always wonder, it smells like a cork, of course, and that's what it's going to smell like. But no, you inspect the cork and you see if the wine has seeped through the cork. Make sure that the cork is, uh, did a good seal and the cork is healthy. Uh, the next thing you're going to do is you watch when they pour it, look at the color. Uh, if a white wine is not clear and it's cloudy, that's not a good sign. If a red wine has turned ochre color, brownish, that's not a good sign. You're looking for that ruby red color on the Pinot Noir. You're looking for that deep burgundy um, in the Pinot, in the uh, um, Cabernets or the Shiraz. With that in mind, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to shake wine and stir it on your glass. When you stir it on your glass, you're looking for sediment, you're looking for pieces of cork, you're steering the wine to expose it to the surface area of the glass so that it can start evaporating and releasing some of the aromas. If you smell vinegar or if you smell skunky, that's not a good sign. The third thing you're going to look for is for the tears. When the wine attaches to the sides of the glass, it will start dripping down and it will make more or less tears. And you see the tears. It's like the streaks of the wine coming down on the sides of the glass. A lots of tears indicate high sugar contents or high alcohol contents. And you almost know that some wines are naturally dry and very fruity, so you expect those wines to have a robust amount of tears. If there is no tears in there, that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign. Mm -hmm. Finally, you're going to take a taste. Let me elaborate by how do you take that first taste of wine? Because sometimes we're very polite about it, and that's not the correct way. You almost have to be impolite when you take that first taste. Take a good gulp of that wine, all right? <laughs> Put it on your mouth, swirl it around your teeth, and take a good gulp of it. Can't do it with a little bit, all right? Let it go from the front of your mouth to the back of your mouth. Let it stir it, let it coat your tongue. And 
don't even make an opinion out of that first gulp. Mm. It's the second taste. That is the one. Because by now, you saturated all your taste buds with that very first sip that you took. And now you're ready to evaluate the wine for real. You take that second taste, and if it doesn't remember the way it tasted the last time you had that same glass, something is not right. You almost have to trust your gut. You have to say, you know, I had this wine before. It doesn't taste like this. Make a mental note of it and simply go ahead and tell your sommelier, there's something, this wine is off. I let them be the ones to tell me, you know what? I agree. Let me get you a new bottle. And it happens all the time. Uh, I hardly ever order wine by the glass, but it happens quite commonly that especially if you order a high-end glass of uh, uh, wine, that bottle has been sitting on that shelf of that bar for much longer time because nobody, no, not as many people order it. And what happens is it gets oxidized. And there is something about it when you take that first taste. You say, oh, this wine is not supposed to taste like this. And what you're tasting is acetaldehyde. So mm -hmm. it gives a unique flavor. If you experience that, don't hesitate to tell the bartender. Distributors will take the bottle back, especially in the high-end one. So don't feel bad. They actually don't want you to have a bad experience with that wine. So don't feel bad. If you think it's off, tell your sommelier, tell your maitre d'. Nah, most times, they will agree with you and just open you another bottle because really it doesn't come out of their paycheck. Ah, that, that makes sense. I didn't know that the restaurant can return a bad bottle to the distributor. Something new to keep in mind. Assuming most times that bottle we choose is good or reasonable at least, what other things you can do or arrange to enhance the experience in enjoying that good bottle of wine? So the next matter that is often um, um, evaluated is the environment. Does it matter the environment where the wine is being consumed in regards to what the final taste and appeal of a wine bottle is. And I can tell you that for sure. Uh, enjoying a wine bottle is an experience, and it's an experience that that is very difficult to dissect into components because it's an experience in and out of itself. Just like a pill of nicotine does not compare to smoking a cigarette, just like a caffeine pill does not compare to that cup of coffee that you drink at your favorite coffee shop, is the same thing with a wine bottle. It's not about the alcohol. It's not even about the wine itself. It's about the context in which we drink it. The temperature carries a significant factor, very significant. Anybody who has drank champagne knows very well that the chiller, the better. If you're drinking a very tart, a very acidic, crisp wine, like a Pinot Grigio, or like a Albarino, or, or even a Sancerre, you want it chilled, very chilled. So temperature does matter. It raises the flavor of some of the ingredients of the wines, of some of the uh, tannins, of some of the uh, acidic nature of the wine. Food pairing. Acidic wines go very well with greasy food. 
That's why we like the champagne with the brie. That's why we like to take our uh, uh, tanning rich wine with meat. Uh, so the pairing with the food does change the flavor. There are some other factors that people claimed that also influence the taste of the wine. Some people believe that the shape of the glass matters. I'm not sure I believe that, but I do know that the wine glasses are shaped to enhance the aroma. Clearly, when you fill a glass of wine to the maximum circumference of the wine glass is to expose as much surface area as possible and enhance the evaporation and the appreciation of the aromas. That's why burgundy glasses are shaped the way they are. Clearly, the thinner the glass, the easier for that glass to exchange temperature with the environment and warm up and equalize temperature with the environment. Third, there are people that believe that the cut on the lip of the glass actually makes a difference. Again, I'm not sure I believe it, but some people believe that if the glass is cut with no rolling lip, it actually changes the flavor. I'm not sure I believe that, but some people believe that. Uh, that actually it influences the taste of the final product. Interesting. Just as you say, the process of enjoying a glass of wine is in itself an experience. The experience is very individual, and probably it is only good that we all perceive the same process in different ways. Take me as an example. <laughs> My encounter with a particular bottle of wine starts when I look at the label. I think about the geographical indication or the appellation, the type of grapes, the year the wine was made, and so on. So before you even uncork it, this wine already has started its effects in me. Most of all, I am fascinated by biochemistry in winemaking, especially during the aging of wines. So, can you share a thing or two, you know, about wine aging? So, in regards to wine aging uh, technology and, and and methods, the wine when is made, it's typically aged in order to smooth out the flavors, enhance some of the flavors, and add pleasant characteristics to the final product. This is done for both white wines, but mostly for red wines. Uh, and, and the traditional method is, of course, barreling. Barreling the wine is a very complex chemical phenomenon. It, it appears at face value to be a simple thing, where we just put the wine in the wooden barrel and we come back so many years later and pour it and drink it. It's far more complicated than that. Clearly, there is an interaction between the wine and the wood that exchanges not only flavors from the wood going to the wine, but there are chemical reactions that happen when the wine gets embedded in the substance of the wood. Tannins are smoothed out because there are chemical reactions. Some of them are just a matter of time. 
where the wine simply acts as a surface area for enhancing the speed at which these reactions happen. There are bacterial reactions from microbes that reside in the wine barrel itself. And finally, there is the extraction of flavors from the wood itself that will leach into the wine. So it's a very complex phenomenon that we can study at the most elegant biochemical levels, but at the end of the day, the people that do this for a living, they know it uh, by heart better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I cannot uh, forget, I once had an experience at a rum distillery uh, in the Caribbean where they had this very sophisticated spectrometer that measured the amount of aldehydes and the amounts of alcohol and the amount of methanol and all these other strange compounds in the rum. And the machine rendered this report. And every time they made a new batch, they tried to mix the rums from one year with a portion of the rums from another year to come up with a consistent taste. None of these sophisticated machines ever worked out pretty good. The best way they always did it, they had a little old guy that was the taster. He would drink the rum and he would tell people exactly what it needed. (laughs) And the guy was much better than any one of those sophisticated machines. And for centuries, they still do it that way. They have a taster. In fact, they have a group of tasters that are the final people that decide what needs to be added to a spirit in order to taste consistently a batch after batch. Winemaking is the same thing. The vintner, the enologist, these people are masters at figuring out what is it that they have to do with a batch of this wine this year from this harvest so that it tastes as closely as possible as the harvest from last year. And they have to do the weirdest tricks from adding some acidic things to it, to aging it a little longer, to aerating it, to having the wine spend some time on a concrete cask rather than a wooden barrel, etc., etc. You ask all these analogies, it's more of an art uh, than a science. What you just heard is my conversation with Dr. Abe Rivera about wines. Archaeologists say wine first started to be used by people who lived in the area of today's Georgia, the country. Historians say that Romans established many vineyards throughout their empire, which formed the foundation of the winemaking culture of most European countries. Scientists continue to discover potential benefits and risks of drinking wines. All these narratives have been changing and will continue to change. What should not change is our role as physicians in guiding patients about alcohol use and to remind our peers to drink moderately and responsibly. What is your wine story? 